This is the Annex of Sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queens College in the City University of New York. Today, we jump into the world of the sociology of food, and we have three terrific guides with us. Sarah Bowen is an associate professor of sociology at North Carolina State University. She co-authored Pressure Cooker, Why Home Cooking Won't Solve Our Problems and What We Can Do About It with Oxford University Press. Jennifer Gaddis is an assistant professor at the School of Human Ecology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She wrote The Labor of Lunch, Why We Need Real Food and Real Jobs in American Public Schools. And Carrie Young is an assistant professor of sociology at The Ohio State University. Her book is Gut Feelings, Emotions, Social Status, and Food Inequality in the American City. Our discussion was recorded on March 27th, 2020. All right. Today, we are talking about the sociology of food, and we have three excellent guests to guide us through that world. Uh, Sarah Bowen is an associate professor of sociology at North Carolina State University. She co-authored The Pressure Cooker, Why Home Cooking Won't Solve Our Problems and What We Can Do About It with Oxford University Press. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. Jennifer Gaddis is an assistant professor at the School of Human Ecology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She wrote The Labor of Lunch, Why We Need Real Food and Real Jobs in American Public Schools. Uh, uh, Jennifer, what, what, who's the publisher? It's the University of California Press. And thank you very much mm -hmm. for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. And Carrie Young is an assistant professor of sociology at The Ohio State University. And she is working on a book, Gut Feelings, Emotions, Social Status, and Food Equality in the American City. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, Kara. Thank you for having me. So food is a, a really big topic. Maybe can you just give us a, a brief uh, summary of uh, of your work in, in, in the social food, like what you focus on, uh, where your passions are, and maybe tell us a little bit about uh, your book. Sarah, do you want to start? Sure. Uh, so I've been working on the sociology of food since I started graduate school, basically, which was almost 20 years ago. And my first project focused more on the production of food. I looked at uh, tequila and mezcal, and that's my first book, and sort of how labels for food can be used to help farmers and communities, or in the case of tequila and mezcal, how they mostly don't. Um, then I had a big shift. My more recent project that I've been working on for the last few years is more on food consumption. We did a lot of interviews and ethnography with mothers in North Carolina. And um, that comes through in Pressure Cooker, which is about how people feed their families and the inequalities that shape that work. Jennifer Gaddis wrote The Labor of Lunch, Why We Need Real Food and Real Jobs. Jennifer, can you tell us about The Labor of Lunch and more generally your work on food? Sure. So my work really brings together both environmental sociology and the sociology of care with this field of critical food studies. So I'm really interested in um, school cafeteria workers as care oh. workers. And I oh. do a lot of work to really um, try to humanize the people that we colloquially know as lunch ladies to try to really explain why um, we have to think not only about the emotional labor that they're doing, but also the kind of physical work that they're doing and how that's been degraded over time. There's a lot of attention being given to um, school food reform, and typically that really ignores the role of workers um, in what needs to be done. So I think um, a big part of my scholarship is to really try to show how even if what we're concerned about is public health and like environmental impacts of food, um, we have to take labor very seriously. And we have to take like these multiple dimensions of labor like quite seriously as well. Carrie Young is working on her book, Gut Feelings. Do you want to tell us about the project and your work more generally? 
Sure. I've been working on food since about 2012, and my journey to food was quite circuitous. I actually did the beginning of my graduate studies just looking at inequality, racial, class, and gender inequalities, and how those systems get reproduced through our everyday practices and get internalized. And in 2012, when I was living in the Bay Area, the food justice movement was on fire. And it, it was an incredible movement that for me in my own lifetime was one of the movements that I felt was doing a really good job of advocating from the bottom up for uh, reform through feeding one another. And so I turned towards the sociology of food for my dissertation, which looks at food consumption and procurement practices in two different neighborhoods in Oakland, one that has a variety of grocery stores close by and restaurants and a farmer's market, and one that has basically corner stores and a number of emergency food supply sites, but no grocery stores within one mile. And I think similar to Sarah's recent work, this was meant to try to dive deep into not just what are the inequalities that people are facing day to day as they're trying to procure food in these two very structurally different neighborhoods with different levels of access to food, but how that affects how people feel about themselves, their bodies, and their health in the process of actually procuring food in these different neighborhoods. All right, now we're recording this episode. It's like the first weeks of the COVID-19 <laughs> crisis. We booked it before. Uh, but it's really interesting how uh, world events can shape your view on things, right? Like, I'd say when we were booking this before the crisis, like, I understood that food was big on an intellectual level, right? Like, it's a big industry. Sure, it has lots of cultural meaning. We spend a lot of time doing it. Big focus of culture, lots of political contests. But I got to tell you, now with the COVID-19 crisis, you feel the importance of the food system on a much more visceral level. Like when you're worried about where your groceries are coming from and you're thinking to yourself, wow, you know, do, do people have to live like this regularly? Like you think about how critically dependent we are on the food system. You think of how many people, uh, you know, were previously not afforded much in the way of like economic benefits or social status for working in the food system and how desperately we need them. Now, there's so much going on. I wanted to start off with your views. Why does the world need the sociology of food now? What we're seeing right now with the COVID-19 crisis and in particular how our society is responding to that crisis is that we have a food system with a lot of cracks in it. Mm -hmm. It's a food system that's built off of exploitation of laborers and where we are increasingly having to buy our food through the market. Mm -hmm. This is not historically always been true, right? That we can only buy our food through the market, but it is now. Um, and, and so all of these cracks in our food system through COVID-19 are expanding. We can see them now. It's like holding a mirror up to a broken system. And it has really illuminated for us that we need some really big structural changes. What types of changes do you, do you think about? For me, I think, you know, when I talk about my work on the sociology of food and maybe Jen and Sarah, you get this question too. People always ask, 
what are your policy recommendations? Like, so why does this matter? And how does this help us to change the world or change policy? And I think that actually the COVID-19 helps us to answer this question in a much sharper way. In, and and the, the answer that I would give is that policy comes with compromise and negotiation, and we're actually out of time for compromise. We've been out of time for compromise. We need systematic overhauls that are addressing poverty, racism, disparate access to food simultaneously for everyone, not just the poor who are living in, in underserved communities. You know, we need to have a disinvestment of our own eating practices from the wellness incentives that are offered to us through capitalism such that we can turn a blind eye to hunger and food insecurity because we as sort of middle class and upper middle class Americans feel secure, right? And feel well, feel like we can buy our wellness through the market. And I think that it shows us even further that we don't have a right relationship with the land and with food. <clears throat> and so as long as we have a system, a food system that's built off of extraction and exploitation, we're going to have these cracks in our food system that the minute we put pressure on them, they can widen and we'll see these deepening inequalities around who has food and who doesn't. Yeah, so um, I really agree with what Kara is saying about how the crisis is really just showing a lot of the existing problems. But I think it's also pointing some people to maybe solutions or alternative practices that they hadn't necessarily considered. So one of the things that I've been really kind of excited to see is more and more people talking about mutual aid and learning about that as a practice. And I think food is like a major sort of medium, um, you know, that people mm -hmm. are practicing mutual aid through. And I think- Can you tell us what's mutual? Aid, yeah, so it's, it's basically this idea of really, um, you know, people in community supporting each other and providing like, um, you know, any kind of whether it's services or goods, like in this sort of community relationship. So really looking after each other's basic needs. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I've um, seen at least happening where I live in Madison, Wisconsin, is our farmer's market has been closed for the last several weeks because of concerns about um, people, you know, congregating in a place together. Um, but a lot of people want access still to fresh local food um, because they might think it's more nutritious or, you know, they just believe in actually supporting small and medium sized growers in their area. So I think that there's been a lot of things that I've seen happening around me where people are saying, well, we want to, um, you know, figure out how we can create alternative mechanisms. So maybe it's hosting like a site for picking up food for, you know, 10 or 15 people at our house um, so that, you know, these farmers can still sell food, people can still get it. But, you know, we're creating much more of this community-based network for people to be helping each other, like gain access to these different kinds of like food products. So I think that, you know, we're starting to see with this um, different ways of people working together to build resilience and to think about, you know, how can we, um, how can we recognize um, some of the problems in our existing system and actually like slow down. And right now it's like a forced slowdown mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and think about, you know, what we might want in the future as we're rebuilding. And I think the other thing that I'll add that I've just been really, I think, heartened to see as somebody who focuses a lot on food and labor is how I think some people who may be like, you know, thought, yeah, it's important, you know, for my restaurant worker to have sick days or, you know, yeah, grocery store workers are important. Like they're getting it on a totally different level now. Yeah. And I think also like, um, you know, some of the 
activists um, who work in this space are getting a much more of a national platform to really explain what's going on. So for instance, um, Bernie Sanders has been doing a lot of these like virtual like town halls and stuff like that um, surrounding COVID-19. And mm -hmm. one of the ones that I watched, he has Saru Jairaman on, who um, is the head of the Restaurant Opportunities Center United and now works for um, an organization called One Fair Wage. And he like, you know, seeded this virtual platform of, you know, whoever's listening um, to his uh his um, talks on COVID-19 to really have her explain how this crisis is impacting restaurant workers and how exactly what Kara said, like basically they've been in crisis all along and this is something that's maybe elevating their crisis. But, you know, a lot of the things that they need um, in the immediate term are actually things that they also need in the long term. So I think it's creating a little bit more of this um, policy window right now for people to be mm -hmm. listening to the fact that, for instance, like, you know, um, having tipped workers earn $2.13 an hour is probably not okay. <laughs> so, so I think one of the other things that it exposes is how stripped down things are in the United States and in many places and how central food is to that. This is in part because when, when you lose your job or you're feeling really worried, like one of the things that we all are thinking about, like on a daily basis is how are we getting, how are we going to make sure that we have enough food? And, mm -hmm. you know, for lots of people, that's been a reality for a long time. But, um, but beyond that, I think like some of these conversations, food has been so central to them and it shows how, how little we have for poor people in the United States and, and how food is part of that. Like in, um, in a lot of the big school districts, including mine, including New York um, City Public Schools, like one of the big conversations was how can we close schools when so many kids didn't mm -hmm. schools yeah. um, for lunch. And SNAP, like one of the big stumbling blocks in, in several of the negotiations over the um, over the bills has been about SNAP because, you know, so many people need SNAP. Jobs are changing so fast. There's a lot yeah. of uh, inflexibilities in SNAP that maybe need to be shifted. And so I think that reveals both how important food is to people's livelihoods, but also to like the general public good, public health, but also how 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 little we have and how some of these uh, programs are just like, it's a cobbled together kind of response. It's sort of all that's left. There's a lot of uh, inequalities, right, in, in food that we can focus on. Maybe we'll start with just uh, the, the inequality that's experienced by consumers, the consumers of food, right? Can you maybe flesh out how bad is the problem of access to quality food or access to enough food at all in the United States, Sarah? One thing is how to define food insecurity. And the USDA defines it as um, not having adequate to enough food for all members of your or family to lead a healthy and productive lifestyle. They have like a specific scale for that and they measure it. And uh, that number varies, but it basically ebbs and flows with the, the economy. So it had gotten lower over the last few years and now it's definitely going to go up again. I think it was, I have, I have death. Does anyone, sorry. I don't remember. One I think out it's of close to nine. Is it one out of nine now, Kara? I think that's wow. right. So uh, it's households, I think, right? I'll put someone else is talking so that we can make sure. But um, to add, to go back to normal talking, um, mm -hmm. if it's one out of nine households last year that were food insecure, but that number is going to go up. Yeah, it is is unacceptable, and that's a lot of people. And I think 
But it's also, I think the problem goes beyond that because food inequality in terms of what people eat and the kind of food that they have access to has risen in recent years. And so there've been some big nutritional studies that show that overall Americans' diets are getting healthier. If you measure mm-hmm. in terms of like eating what the nutritionists tell us we're supposed to eat. Right. Uh, but that that has disproportionately been among richer Americans, whereas foreign working class uh, diets have, have stagnated. And a lot of that is related to not eating enough of the healthy foods that we're told that we should eat. And I think there's a lot of good sociology work, critical nutrition work on, you know, what is healthy and, and what does that mean? So, so that's important, but I do think it's important also that, that diets are becoming more divergent, that, you know, some people have more autonomy to choose the foods they want than others. And that that might not necessarily be captured with food insecurity data. So I just wanted to um, highlight one thing. Um, I I think that something that's really important for people to understand if they haven't really dug into this field um, much in the past is that some of the people who are actually like growing our food, harvesting it, um, you know, processing it, um, cooking it and serving it are actually some of the most food insecure people in the U.S. So food insecurity is really high among um, what are called food chain workers, um, largely because they're um, in some of the lowest paying occupations in the U.S. So I think that that's like a special kind of like just wrong um, within our system. The people who are actually making sure that, you know, our society as a whole can eat oftentimes um, are really like struggling to feed themselves and their families and in particular Mm -hmm. struggling to feed their families um, nutritious, culturally appropriate food. And I just wanted to also um, kind of build on something Sarah was saying earlier, where I think um, in this moment of COVID-19 and school closures, um, I think that we can really see um, in a lot of ways um, food insecurity, both um, at the family level and in particular at the child level, and how a lot of these decisions about whether schools should be shut or not to begin with really had a lot to do with my subject of research, which is the National School Breakfast and Lunch Programs um, as being a really important part of our social safety net, and in particular, um, this really important mechanism for Um, really helping to combat child hunger. And I think that um, a really kind of significant thing there tends to be this um, real sort of romanticization of kids um, as like being deserving of food assistance, much more so than actually their families as a whole. In fact, the U.S. Department of Agriculture recently um, announced this um, kind of public private partnership that they have with PepsiCo, where um, for kids in rural areas who are especially food insecure, they are going to be spent like basically sending like boxes of um, like commodity foods um, to kids in rural areas. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, you know, they're sending like boxes of food to family addresses, but it's specifically supposed to be for only the kids like in the household, right? And I think that that just kind of gives us um, a a glimpse into like how there tends to be this really like moralizing discourse in the US about like really using public dollars to specifically protect kids um, versus um, family, like nutrition and food security. The the non-deserving parents. Wait, before we go on to to care, can you explain to us, Jen, the, what was the, what's the (coughs) act that, uh, 
uh, sure. The you were talking about? Yeah. So we, um, in the U.S., we have both a national school breakfast and school lunch program um, in um, about 95 percent of public schools and a fair number of nonprofit private schools. They participate in these programs. Um, most schools participate in lunch um, at greater rates than the breakfast program. Um, but basically what it is is a, a program that um, provides um, either free, reduced price or low cost um breakfasts or lunches to kids in schools. So this is a program that, that officially started in 1946 and has historically been something that um, really is supposed to support both domestic agriculture and child nutrition. Um, but I think that in a lot of ways, it's really been converted into both a poverty program. So there tends to be very low participation among families that really have like a choice um, to opt out of the program. So right. Um, right now there's about 30 million kids who participate in the school lunch program on any given day. And about 22 million of them are from families that are at 185% or lower of the federal poverty line. I wanted to also add that when we look at food insecurity numbers, there is racial inequality happening here. This is a racial justice issue, as well as a socioeconomic justice issue. If we look at food insecurity rates across the country, it is something like one in nine. The U.S. households are food insecure. But when we look at that by racial group, we see that it's about 9% for white households, 22% for black households, and 18% for Hispanic households. So his black and Hispanic households are almost twice as likely to experience food insecurity than their white and Asian counterparts. And that's really important when we're thinking about how to build interventions, right, that try to alleviate these food insecure, food insecurity. Um, I also wanted to note that when we're talking about food insecurity, it often goes hand in hand with economic or housing insecurity. And so one of the other measures that we can look at in trying to understand what food insecurity actually means is this idea of um, what it uh, of being cost burdened. So when we think about this concept of cost burdened, it's are you spending so much of your income on your basic needs that you're now needing to make a trade-off between, let's say, food on the one hand and housing or shelter on the other. And in the United States, we say that a family is cost burdened if they're spending more than 30% of their income on housing and severely cost burdened if they're spending more than 50% of their income on housing. And this is also a racial justice issue. We know that Black and Hispanic households are almost twice as likely as white households to be cost burdened, and that cost burdened households are more likely to be food insecure. So if we look at food insecurity more holistically, it's actually imbricated with other forms of insecurity, such as, you know, income insecurity, housing insecurity, that are racially stratified. Can I something? Yeah. Uh, just, just to add to what Kara said um, about the racial justice, I think there's also uh, a rural-urban dimension that often gets overlooked. And urban food insecurity is obviously a huge problem, and food and housing costs can be very high in urban areas. But 
but often the conversations ignore rural food insecurity. And uh, in, if you look at the counties that are the most food insecure, they are mostly rural counties. They're disproportionate in the South. And then those counties are, many of them are counties with very high proportions of, of African-Americans um, in the South and uh, Latinx people in the Southwest. And so it is a racial justice issue that also has some spatial dimensions that I think are often overlooked. Right, let, let's Maybe let's turn now to inequality within the food industry, within the food economy. Maybe Jen, you're the best person to start on this one. Uh, can you explain to us inequality uh, among the makers and distributors of, of food? Well, I think that um, one of the things that's really important to think about is like who tends to be profiting from the food system. And oftentimes it tends to be that the concentration of profits is really in um, kind of the, the marketing and the processing industries, I believe. Um, so I think that one of the things that's important um, if we're thinking about how to potentially build a more just and sustainable food system is where sort of points of leverage or power lie. So for instance, um, in a lot of my teaching, um, I work with a lot of students who are really interested in like community organizing and labor organizing. So one of the organizations that I will sometimes bring into my class is the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. And I think that they're a really interesting example where early on in their organizing, this was a group of farm workers um, in Florida who were really earning just terrible wages and dealing with like issues of modern day slavery um, in the tomato growing fields there. And initially they thought, okay, well, you know, it's our bosses. It's like the people, you know, who are overseeing us in the fields who we need to go to in order to change the situation. But as they, um, you know, started organizing, they realized that actually the growers are really being squeezed by like the big supermarket chains and mm. by like the big fast food chains. Um, they really can't necessarily afford to pay us a lot more um, for like the tomatoes that we're growing. So what we need to do is we actually need to start organizing and trying to like get people to, for instance, like shame like Taco Bell, <laughs> McDonald's and these other countries that really care a lot about their brand image or like Publix or other supermarkets, um, you know, that are the ones that are really in a lot of ways, like setting the prices for what these wholesale like tomato, you know, um, grower companies are able to actually get um, because that trickles down to what they're able to pay their workers. So um, I think that they um, are a good example of really thinking about, well, who holds power within the food system and kind of what's the point of intervention. And I think a lot of times it really is at like this very sort of top level in terms of these multinational corporations that really are profiting off of a lot of exploitation kind of um, down like this vertical, um, you know, food supply chain. You know, one, two striking observations about uh, the food production system and labor that have emerged for me coming out of the, or it, through this COVID-19 uh, uh, problem. The first one was, it was very telling to me, I saw in Canada, I don't know what they're doing here in the United States, but Canada declared migrant agriculture workers to be essential laborers. And I thought, isn't that interesting? Like they critically need them, but not enough to give them legal residency or like citizenship, right? Like it used to be like a lot of this xenophobia is premised on the idea that like people coming into the country somehow harm society. And it's very telling to me that when push came to shove, we were like, oh no, we need these migrant workers. We have every incentive health-wise, to close our borders, but we cannot do it 
And I, I, I was thought to myself, wow, isn't that telling? But we still won't give him a green card. Uh, because, uh, you know, because so as a percentage of our income, Americans pay less for our food than any other country. And um, this is in part because our food system is so dependent on migrant labor, especially farm workers, but also in meatpacking industries. And and we are totally dependent on it. And it benefits consumers in terms of prices, but especially um, producers in the ways that Jennifer was talking about to have this workforce that is so vulnerable and that can be underpaid and exploited. And, and you know, so, yeah. I think um, one other thing that I would um, mention in relation to this question is that, you know, even even within particular industries or particular um, sort of sectors of the the food system, we find lots of different types of segregation. So, for instance, when we think about like the restaurant world, um, you know, we've been talking about immigrant labor. Um, where do you find most immigrant labor? It's in the back of the house. So it's in the cook and dishwashing positions that like are lower wage. And I think um, there's an organization that I mentioned earlier, the Restaurant Opportunities Center that has produced a lot of really great reports that really show just how much segregation exists, even in like fine dining restaurants in terms of just who has access to the higher paying jobs in restaurants. It tends to be, um, you know, white um, educated people um, who have a college degree. Um, they're much more able to get these positions as servers in fine dining restaurants where they might actually be able to bring home a livable wage. Whereas, you um, you know, a lot of the people who um, are working um, in back of house positions are putting in just a, a tremendous number of hours with very, very little opportunity for any job mobility. I was just going to say um, that with COVID and all of this, um, I'm very worried about the immigrant workers because many of the so immigrant workers have some of the mo most vulnerable positions in terms of like the health risks, like the farm workers need to continue to uh, keep picking the produce or else the food system is going to collapse. Uh, a lot of immigrant workers are the, um, are delivery workers. And so that, that is very exposed. And, um, and then in terms of the protections that they have access to in terms of unemployment benefits and these and SNAP already in some of the interviews that we did in North Carolina, we saw that these families, they, they didn't want to, they didn't want to go to food pantries or they were to, to take, they were afraid to, um, interact with public and nonprofit kind of organizations for benefits that they were qualified for because of fear of being deported. Um, and so I am very worried about as, as we see more and more vulnerable people, the effect that this will have on immigrant workers. And just just really quickly, I'll add that um, another area where that's happening is in the school breakfast and lunch programs. So um, we've actually been seeing some issues. And I've talked to a lot of the people kind of on the ground who, who have said that they um, are really concerned, particularly um, in this last year with um, more and more families not feeling comfortable um, actually filling out the paperwork that would allow their children to receive free and reduced price lunches. Piggybacking off of what Sarah said about being concerned about our migrant laborers, um, I was on a call yesterday where we were getting a report back on what's happening in the fields right now. And even though there are pictures that are circulating that show that workers in the fields are practicing social distancing, you know, picking the vegetables and fruits for us six feet apart, 
This is not true in the pack houses. This is not true in the dairy mills. Um, there, people are still working side by side, even in the midst of this crisis. And I think that that can happen because we have a system of exploitation in which, and racism, right? Xenophobia and racism, in which those people aren't seen as having bodies that matter. And so they can be put at risk so that the rest of us can eat. Um, the other thing that I learned that I thought was so interesting is that those who are coming to the United States through the H-2A visa program, which is a program that we have with Mexico where um, Mexican farm workers can get special visas to come over and work seasonally in our fields. Um, it is perfectly legal to have 15 people in a three-bedroom home. So, And they are bused to the fields every day in these confined small spaces. So even if they get to the fields and then are six feet apart, you know, it it is very hard for migrant laborers to be practicing the kind of social distancing and isolation the rest of us are being told is so critical at this time. And to that point, um, something else I thought was really interesting from this call yesterday is someone said, you know, we're really in crisis right now. But I think it's going to be six months from now when we are feeling the effects on our food system fully and no one knows because that's when we're going to see this whole production cycle right now and what, what we have and don't have because we're seeing all of these breakdowns in the supply chain. Whoa. That's extremely discouraging, though. I can totally see that being true at the same time. It's really striking in a way how we grind down workers to almost like a semi-slavery where they can't get real wages and they have to show up at work if they're sick because if they just miss a day their life can come down like a house of cards you know that you can't get health care it's 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 amazing the uh the 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 sort of the social cost that we've incurred to get like cheap food and to get like uh you know cheap food for for great prices and it's something maybe i didn't think about so much until this happened and Hopefully there's some type of cognizance. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit more about uh, culture and food or, or food and society. Uh, how has our relationship with food over time changed in the United States? I mean, in terms of how our relationship to food has changed, that's a complicated question. And the historian certainly would have, have a lot to say. I think one, just to make one point, I think we have, there is this nostalgia for how things used to be that I see a lot. Our book, Pressure Cooker, is in part a response to that nostalgia and this idea that Michael Pollan most famously uh, popularized that, you know, we need to return to cooking like our great grandmothers did. And it evokes these images of how everyone used to gather around the dinner table for, for, for a good meal back when families were together and women were at home. And, you know, it also evokes these images of farm fresh produce and cows in the pasture and all of these things. And all of that is constructed. You know, many families never looked like that. Many grandmothers, including my great grandmothers, like did not look like that. They were working. They were working in very crowded conditions. They were being exploited. Um, 
they also were food insecure and probably were very happy with some kinds of processed food. Um, I've talked about, I talked to my grandma about her mom, my great grandma, and you know, she worked in a factory. She came home. She was a, she was uh, a single mom for a lot of that. And they just scrambled to put dinner on the table. Like I'm sure she would have been very happy um, with some of the food innovations that we've made since then. Yeah. So I think, <laughs> so that doesn't really say how has it changed, but I think there is a lot of construction and that that's tied up in all of these ideas, which is what matters most to me about how people think families should be or who they want to erase, who they want to, you know, preserve and erase from our national memory. So I think that, um, you know, a lot of us who work on food, I think, um, you know, Michael Pollan is a polarizing figure because like for some reason he became like the voice of anything related to food and he (laughs) misses a lot of really important things. Um, But I think that some of his uh, work really did help popularize this idea of local food in particular. So I think um, even in the time that I've been working um, within um, kind of the food system space, so uh, for a little over a decade, I think that this idea of organic and local food um, being things that even like pretty mainstream consumers who are not even necessarily really thinking that much about like food justice issues um, are like embracing, um, I think has been like quite a change. And even in the last five years, I think um, this sort of evolution away from like organic to thinking about like clean eating and thinking about like additives in food um, and like special diet type stuff. I think that there's been like a real like growth in that. And it's not to say that we haven't like had natural foods industry for a long time. I mean, we have in this country, but I think it's it's become like increasingly like a mainstream for um, oh, yeah. mainstream thing for people to at least talk about and know about whether or not they're purchasing those foods themselves, I think is another question. And there's a lot of like, I think social class kind of barriers to that. But I think that there's just a lot more um, knowledge about, um, I think, differences in like sort of the material nature of food, and how it's produced. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to mention like that. And then I think also another component is, I think that um, there is a lot more interest in like different food cultures these days and kind of Mm -hmm. experiencing culture through food um, than maybe there was historically when there might've been a little bit more kind of just xenophobia surrounding like what constitutes like American cuisine. Uh, I just wanted to say about Michael Pollan that even though I'm very critical of Michael Pollan, it's true that he opened up the conversation in a way that is, has been helpful to people like all of us who study food, um, you know, in terms of the people, the students that we teach and the conversations we have about our work. So I think there is more of a national conversation about food and good food and what that means, um, which is important. I'll just also say that one of the changes we've seen over the last 40 years is the shift from having locally owned meat packing houses, you know, locally owned dairy mills, for example, um, seeds that were saved and passed down from farmer to farmer, to now having this factory model that really informs a lot of our food system. And what that means is that we have um, less variety in our food, even as we have the illusion of having an incredible variety in our grocery stores. When you look at who actually owns 
all of the brands that you see in the grocery store, it comes down to four or five major corporations that own most of the food that we consume. McDonald's is a great example of this. I remember when I started doing my work on food and my parents said, I just don't understand. When I was growing up, McDonald's was great. We used to go there. It was a treat. And now it's this stigmatized thing. It's making people sick. Explain it to me, right? And and I think that that the answer to that is quite complex. <laughs> but one of the things that we see is that the McDonald's that was the first McDonald's and the McDonald's that is the McDonald's now is very different, as are the ingredients, as are the quality of the ingredients, because of this factory model where we're mass producing food, we're feeding our animals very differently that we end up sending to the slaughter. Um, We're giving them a lot of hormones, for example, um, and antibiotics so that we can sort of keep them in production for longer, make them fatter before we slaughter them. So there's actually been a change in what food actually looks like when it's being produced, the sort of monoculture model, right? Instead of having lots of different plants within one garden, we have rows and rows and rows and rows of the same plant on a field. That is new to agriculture over the last 50, 60, 70 years and really has transformed our food production system and also what foods are available to us. So I wanted to actually just build on something that Kara was saying. Um, so there's a sociologist who, I don't know if I'll pronounce his last name right, but Michael Carillon. Um, anyways, he introduced this um, concept um, to me that was really helpful, where um, he really talked about this flattening out of taste preferences due to exactly what Kara has been talking about in terms of um, not only this reduction in terms of the different varieties of crops that we're growing, um, but also, you know, what industrial food tends to taste like. And so he, he really talks about how because like these companies have worked really hard to kind of create and shape taste expectations, it actually makes it quite difficult to have like agrobiodiversity because, you know, when you don't have a taste base that's actively wanting to like purchase um, like different like heirloom varieties of things or even knowing what, you know, something that's not an heirloom variety, but it's just like not super common actually is, um, it it makes it very difficult in terms of market conditions for um, people to continue producing those things. So he really talks a lot about how um, we you know, if we want to have an agrobiodiverse food system, which is actually very important for like climate change, like resiliency and things of, of that nature, um, we actually have to do this work of recultivating a taste base for these different types of foods. So I think that that's one area where I didn't mention this earlier when we were asked to sort of talk about like our broader areas of research, but I do some collaborative work with um, some Native colleagues and graduate students here at UW-Madison who are really um, working quite a bit with Indigenous food sovereignty um, initiatives across the U.S. and Canada. And I think that this is a really big thing that a lot of Native communities are leading on is this this connection between, um, you know, what our diets look like and what we're um, growing and producing and how that relates to um, really the environmental conditions around us and how we have to think about production and consumption in this very linked nature. Um, to build off something that Jennifer mentioned uh, about like food, food culture, or food taste, 
I think something interesting is that as our food system has become more industrialized and more homogenous, there has been a shift in people's taste preferences for food and specifically in terms of like what constitutes good or elite food. So Jose Johnson and Sean Bowman published a book more than 10 years ago now, I think, um, Foodies. Mm -hmm. Their argument is that whereas elite food in the 60s meant it it was something, it was French food. It was like haute cuisine with like fancy waiters and fancy outfits that now what constitutes elite food has changed a lot and it coalesces around food that is authentic and exotic. And some of this food could be inexpensive. It's food from the farmer's market, food from hole in the wall restaurants, food from other countries, like being able to say, I tried this really authentic uh, food from this country or that country. And so, so our, our food tastes have shifted. Although there have also been a lot of sociologists who have shown that that doesn't necessarily translate to money going back to the chefs and restaurants and people who make that food, especially when you're talking about um, like immigrant owned restaurants. One last question. Let's say we have a listener who's really interested in the social food, wants to get into the field. What are your, who are your must reads and, and give them some tips, how to get started. Who, 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 who should they be reading besides, besides all of you, of course. So this is not a, this, this book is not written by a sociologist, but I read it with my grad class last year and I just really loved it. Eating NAFTA by Alicia. Mm -hmm. And what I love about it is that she is connecting the way people eat and the way foods are produced and she's doing it by looking across the United States and Mexico and looking at how the food and the people and the ideas move across borders and how big policies like NAFTA, you know, kind of have these concrete effects on, on how people's lives uh, play out. So, so that was, that's just one book, but it's a book that I really loved and my students also loved. I feel like I should just um, emphasize that, like, I really identify as a scholar activist. So, like, a lot of the people that I love are, like, really doing work that is um, in some way um, in communication, um, whether it's through participatory action research or another mechanism with, um, like, activists who are doing this work on the ground. So, I really liked, um, so a sociologist, Josh Bika, um, he has a, a book um, called uh, Food Justice Now, <laughs> I think. Um, but I think that he really represents, um, you know, the, this work of thinking about food justice in this very intersectional way um, and really like highlighting the work of different community organizations and activists. And another um, person who's not a sociologist, she's a geographer, is Laura Ann Minkoff-Cern. And her book um, just came out that um, is really about like um, immigrant um, farmers in the U.S. And I think that she, for me, is another example of kind of this generation of scholars that really is committed to doing work and collaboration with the people they're doing research um, with. I want to echo what Jen said about Food Justice Now. That's an excellent book if you're interested in understanding the social struggle that communities have been um, taking up uh, for the purpose of building a more just and sustainable food system for themselves and their, their local communities. Also, the book Food Justice by Robert Gottlieb and Anna Puma. Joshi, I hope that I, or Josh, Josh, Joshi, perhaps. Um, I love that book as well. Food, health, and environment. Um, I also want to say that there, if you're interested in 
studying race and food, there have been three books that have come out over the past year that have taken up this issue of food and racial justice. Um, one is by sociologist Monica mm-hmm. White. Uh, it's called uh, Freedom Farmers. There's another book by Leah Pennyman, mm-hmm. who is an activist. She owns and operates a farm called Soul Fire Farm in upstate New York and has an amazing um, program every summer for Black, Indigenous people of color to do immersions on the land. And she just wrote a book called Farming While Black. And there's also another book by geographer Ashante Reese. Mm-hmm. Um, Ash- and I think it's see. Black Food Geographies, right? That's her, uh-huh. Yes, yeah. Black Black Food Geographies, Ashante Reese. All right. Sarah Bowen, Jennifer Gaddis, Kara Young, thank you very much for talking to me today. Thank you. You've been listening to the Annex of Sociology podcast. Special thank you to our panelists, Sarah Bowen from North Carolina State University, Jennifer Gaddis from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and Kara Young, Ohio State University. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash annex, on Facebook, the Annex Sociology podcast, and on Twitter, at SociAnnex. Uh, our producer is Lisette Moreno, music by Lena Orsa. I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening. All right.